Welcome everyone to Where Work Meets Life. I'm Dr. Laura, and I'm really excited to bring you an episode on navigating narcissism in work and life with Wendy Beharry, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago already. She wrote the best-selling book, Disarming the Narcissist, which is translated into 15 languages. She's also founder of the Schema Therapy Institutes in New Jersey, New York, and DC. She's done a heck of a lot of work, 30 years specializing in helping narcissists and the people that have to work and live with them. So uh, welcome again to Where Work Meets Life, Wendy. Thank you, Laura. Great to be back with you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So, Wendy, how have you seen narcissism impact people's wellness at at work and in workplaces? Well, I think, you know, there's this word that just comes right to my mind when you ask this question, Laura, and it's angst. You know, I think that when you're working with a narcissist, it's hard not to be having maybe more than a moment of anxiety and agitation. I have seen people who become, they develop this anticipatory anxiety. It's the Sunday night syndrome, you know, of knowing that you have to face the workplace again. And, you know, lots of people can feel that when they're enjoying their weekend and don't want to let go. But when you're going back to deal with someone who may be even tyrannical in their narcissism, controlling, commanding, dismissive, threatening, um, sometimes abusive, aggressive, interruptive, devaluing. I mean, we could go on and, and you, you can't help but feel, you know, physically even compromised in your body, exhausted, restless, hard to focus, depressed in some cases. That's not to say everyone who works with a narcissist can't function. But I do think there are some who will have more trouble than others, particularly those who are not only facing it in the workplace, but then they face it at home as well, or they know it all too well because they were raised by a narcissistic parent. So it can take its toll on our emotional and physical energy. Absolutely. Now with overt versus covert narcissists, how would you say that each of those play out in work and how they affect people? Yeah, I mean... The, the ones that can be the most intimidating and overwhelming are the overt narcissists. Again, it's that, that degree of assertive energy that is, and it comes across in a kind of over, we call it overcompensating way, meaning that it's, it's larger than life, it's in your face. And the expectations are sometimes incredibly unrealistic. The standards are so high that they become unreachable for the person working in that environment for the narcissist. Um, The narcissist is a model of um, workaholism, basically, and anyone who falls short of that is essentially debased. So the overt narcissist is quite overwhelming. The covert narcissist can be overwhelming too, but their play is a little bit different. They tend to be more passive aggressive, you know, they'll make the promises to sort of be the big guy or the the, the big woman, um, and then they don't keep them. Um, they'll expect you to show up on time, and then they show up late. They feel entitled, you know, to do as they please. They both feel that overt and covert, but covert narcissists will tend to be, think of it as a little bit more neurotic in this kind of, you know, whiny, complaining, victimization way that they show up. I think most people listening who've worked for narcissists will relate more to the 
former rather than the latter in the workplace environment where they feel the most angst and they feel more powerless. And your listeners who are living with covert narcissists, this will probably resonate more for them, the ones in our personal lives, where you, you're dealing with this kind of passive aggressive acting behind the scenes. Nobody ever appreciates me. In fact, they're the ones that will often label you the narcissist. Mm-hmm. And that's, is that known as gaslighting in, in your language? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. Gaslighting is about distorting reality. It's trying to convince you that whatever you're thinking, saying, doing, whatever you claim was said, was not said. You under misunderstood. You misheard it. I never said that. That didn't happen. And so it's a distortion of reality that is designed not for the narcissist to just make you crazy. I mean, that would be more in the field of psychopathy or a psychopath, right? Someone who's kind of cynically taking pleasure and making you feel like you've lost your mind. The narcissist will try to impose these distortions on you, get you to doubt yourself, get you to rethink your version of the truth to protect their ego. So it's more in the spirit of protecting their ego. That's not an excuse and it's not a justification, but it's just a different motivational driver. But gaslighting is about getting you to recheck yourself because they, they're trying to maintain their power play their power position. They can't be wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is very much uh, resonating. You do a great job explaining this. And um, my question is, and, and I think you alluded to this in your book, right? So there's leadership coaches that work with leaders, right? So if a leader is demonstrating narcissistic behaviors, can is there a chance to help that person? Or is that really the domain of therapy and can these people actually change? I've worked with leadership coaches and this is where they will find themselves stuck or falling short or facing limits. When they have been assigned a leader to work with who has narcissistic traits, it's difficult because there typically isn't enough leverage to make a transformational difference, a meaningful difference. There has to be a consequence. The stakes have to be high enough so that the narcissist is all in. They may not be all in saying, I really need to change, help me. They rarely say that. But they may be all in in do whatever it takes to get me off the hook because I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be demoted. I don't want to be suspended. I don't want to be disciplined in any way. And so you have enough consequence available that you can work with to sustain them. But then to get deeper into where you're going to get lasting, sustainable change, it often requires therapy. They're not going to change without therapy. And what percentage of them are open to therapy and actually persist with therapy? Yeah, it's not that high. Um, because again, you can see the elements that would be necessary to make that happen. High leverage, an effective treatment approach, and a very sturdy therapist you know, who has a strong back, who is able to stay in this healthy adult stance when they're working with them to be able to be very real, confrontational, limit setting, really call them out, you know, really play it out in the what I call the treatment laboratory. You need all three elements. And because that is so hard to get those stars to align, it doesn't happen often enough. It's a small number, I think. 
And I bet you have a long waiting list because you sound like I just know how talented you are at this, Wendy. Thank you. Yeah, the waiting list is it's long and sadly, it's hard. There's not too many people who say, yeah, sure, send them to me. <laughs> you know, I'd like to work with the narcissist. There's I spend a good deal of my time just training therapists on how to become more effective in doing therapy with someone who has narcissistic issues because it's so important and it's so hard. Good for you. Hence why you've founded the the institutes as well as the therapy center, etc. right? And wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> I think, you know, some of us are more empathetic and at the extreme of empathy is the empath, right? That feels emotion so strongly and is highly sensitive. How, what's the interplay between the empath and the narcissist? Is the narcissist attracted to empaths? I'm just curious to know more. The narcissist is attracted to self-sacrificers. And so often the empath and the self-sacrificer are one and the same. So when we think about someone who is highly self-sacrificing, typically what motivates that is two things, guilt and empathy. So if you've got a super amount of empathy and you also carry guilt, which may have been laid down through modeling in your own early life, then chances are you're willing to sacrifice your own needs, even your own identity in order to please another narcissist. Yay. Happy day, right? When you find a partner who will let you have what you want when you want it, who agrees with you even when they don't agree, who lets you have your opinions, who lets you grandstand and orate and all of that until they don't. Because on the other end of the swinging metronome for the self-sacrificer is resentment. So it's just a matter of time before this empath begins to swing over to the other side and think, what about me? What about my turn? What about my ideas? What about my opinions? When do I count? And then the narcissist pummels them with threats and criticism and gaslighting and blame shifting. And now the empath is back to, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be so selfish. Maybe I shouldn't be thinking about myself. Maybe he or she is right. You know, And so it's this constant swing between guilt, sacrifice, and resentment and anger. Wow. Wow. What a complex dynamic is, is all I can say. So boundary setting, right, is one of the strategies here. So what are your top recommendations, Wendy, for setting boundaries and protecting our emotional well-being when working alongside narcissists, either as our peers or our leaders? Well, I, you know, some of this is going to come from my bias, which is that I don't like to see people become silenced. I do feel that finding your voice and using your voice, but using it wisely is usually my preference. And then there is a time for just being quiet, stepping back, watching, catching your breath, right? We don't want to be reactive. So if you are going to open your mouth, open your mouth when you are poised in your healthiest adult stance meaning that you are thoughtful and you are reflective, not reactive. Because from a reflective place, you can use what I call the narrator strategy. And you can say, I'm aware at this moment that I'm feeling a lot of frustration. So it's probably not a good time for us to have this meeting. And so maybe I can ask for a few minutes just to kind of catch my breath and gather my thoughts. And then we can come back to this in the spirit of protecting the project that we're working on, protecting our work relationship, whatever it might be. So you're sort of narrating what's happening in here 
you're changing the dance and the dynamic, and then you're stepping away. So it's, it's this kind of combination of a narrator, an internal narrator, who's also an internal advocate. You're setting a boundary by changing the dance and you're stating it very clearly by using what I call the transparent intention. This is my intention loud and clear. I'm not just walking away from you. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not being aloof. I'm carefully thinking about the way I'm feeling about this and trying to protect this relationship or this project that we're working on. So I need a moment to gather myself. And in that moment, what we mostly need is to really just take our most vulnerable self, close our eyes, take a deep breath, you know, put a little pressure here on your heart with your hands, just bring that warmth and escort your little self to a safe place. You know, just use the power of the imagination to escort your little self. I'll take little Wendy and just kind of breathe her into a safe little cozy space so I can feel my spine again. I feel my head back on and I feel like I'm an adult. I don't have to go in there like this. I don't want to be reactive. I want to be reflective and thoughtful and in my wise mode. And so you can take those little pauses but I think that when you use some language to describe what your intention is, it's going to go further than when you just disappear or you try to just react to the moment. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of the fight, flight, freeze type response, right? So how some of us, when we get agitated, stressed, confronted, um, we tend to flee and escape the situation. Um, others of us tend to fight back and be combative. And some of us just freeze, right? So do you um, have any thoughts on on how that plays out and how we can be more aware of our tendencies there and with, with narcissists? Yeah, I think it's, it's a daily exercise of just kind of putting your eyeballs on yourself, your eyeballs, your ears, your, your whole sensory system comes into your awareness and you just kind of watch yourself. You watch your impulse to react whether it's to go at it or it's to avoid and, and, and to apologize and to give in and to submit yourself. Anytime you feel yourself in that reactive state, you're coming from your survival system, which mean your, means your brain has perceived this event as a threat to your survival. No, it's not really a threat to your survival. It's just incredibly uncomfortable and overwhelming. So when we can calm that nervous system and we can help this more vulnerable part of ourself, because that's where it's coming from usually, to differentiate between real danger and perceived danger, then we're in a capacity to be able to hold our head up, lift our chin and face the narcissistic coworker and say, yeah, I can see your point of view and it's interesting to me. I can see that you put a lot of thought into that. And I know this is really your area of expertise but I have another idea, if you'd like to hear it, you know, maybe one that could um, either be kind of a ride along with what you're thinking, or maybe something that you might want to integrate, right? So you're just standing there poised in strength. You don't have to fight, you don't have to run away, you don't have to just give in. You can be present, you can be an advocate for yourself. They may toss it, so don't expect like, they're going to suddenly become your best friend. That's not going to happen. But what you feel in that victory moment is, hmm, I just stood up for me. <laughs> you know, I was just an advocate for me. Good for me. I can have a voice and I can have a voice that's thoughtful, not reactive. 
even if it doesn't necessarily change anything on the other side, because it may not. They're pretty hard to change. I really appreciate your realistic stance on this, uh, Wendy. So tell us, I mean, you're a thought leader in this. I, I can tell you've amassed a lot of wisdom in this whole domain of a narcissistic behavior at work and in relationships. Um, so tell us how people can learn more from you, follow you, follow the writings that you do, etc. They can find my podcasts, resources, uh, the links for my book, a lot of re- a lot of information on my website. So just typing in disarmingthenarcissist.com in your search engine or my name, and it will take you to my website. And there's just a whole lot of information there. I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. But I think that the easiest access to all of the resources, papers, and interviews will be there on my website. Wonderful. I had a random question. To what extent is the research and the the learnings applicable to different cultures throughout the world on this topic? Mm, Yeah, this is a great question. And um, it's applicable. You know, I have spoken to colleagues around the world. So I've been in many cities around this world, and I've had the pleasure of meeting therapists who are scratching their heads and pulling their hair, trying to figure out how to deal with this population and the people who are offended by narcissism. It's a worldwide issue. I think culturally it can be a bit more complicated when you're dealing with a a culture where narcissism is kind of promoted and it's promoted via, for example, the machismo right? There's this whole culture of the machismo, which is very difficult to overrun or to call into question and challenge. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human and we come into the world with the same needs. And so I've worked with people of many cultures and I find that despite the cultural obstacles that they may be up against, that their needs are still the same. Beautifully put. No, I really appreciate that. Now, so we will put uh, the link to your website, your book, etc., and your social media handles um, in our show notes in the blog uh, that I published from this great episode and the last episode we did two weeks ago. Um, so my next question to you is one that I ask all of our guests. If you didn't need to sleep and could use that time to do whatever else you want, what would it be? <laughs> Oh, boy. Really? Do I have to pick one thing? (laughs) Um, I think if I didn't need to sleep, and I, what a dream, right? If we didn't have to sleep, and I had all that extra time in the world. Gosh, I would be tap dancing a lot more playing tennis and banging on my djembe drum. I just love percussion. And I would be having, I think I'd probably be balancing my own life a little bit better and adding more play. And a little more joy. <laughs> Tell us about that because we focus a lot on work-life wellness on this podcast. How do you stay well given the population that you work so much with that must drain you emotionally if you let it? Well, exercise is really critically important. You know, making sure that I'm exercising, that I am getting enough rest and sleep. I think since COVID, it's been so hard on people in our industry. I think we're all working harder than ever ergo the hard time everyone's having finding therapists who are available. We all just kind of went to work because 
it was what we could do. And there were so many people suffering who just needed the help, so much crisis. And therapists are exhausted. Um, we are all working hard. I'm working hard. But sleep, exercise, making some time to be with good friends, to have some laughs, you know, laughter, music. These are the things for me that just kind of soothe my soul and re refresh me so that I can keep going. And letting out your emotions into percussion. I love it. And percussion. I love percussion. Yes, I do. Someone told me they were part of a drumming circle and it was such a great outlet. Have you done that as well? It's on my list of things to do. Yes, I would love to get into a drumming circle and bring my drum. <laughs> Another therapist I met with a few weeks ago said that, so that stuck with me. Um, one more question. If you had one wish for a better world when it comes to narcissism and its effect on workplaces and on human lives, what would it be? I think it would be, it would come down to that thing that I call the golden nugget, which is empathy, you know, a world where people took the time to really understand because empathy gets confused with sympathy and compassion. And it's not either of those things. Empathy is about understanding, making sense out of something. If we could make sense out of this, you know, then we stand the chance of being able to maintain our footing, to, to hold someone accountable to get them to pay attention and make sense out of their own life. The problem is that we either go silent or we end up submitting and that's where the angst comes into play. So I think, you know, developing a greater sense of empathy along with, I think what everyone wishes for, which is just kindness, you know, just more kindness in our humanness. That is um, amazing and so well put. I couldn't agree more. So. Thank you very much for your time today, Wendy. I really appreciated learning from you personally. Thank you, Laura. It's, it's always a pleasure. I'm so glad to be with you again today. Wonderful. So thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, again, the show notes, the newsletter, etc. We will share all this information. And if you like this episode, please rate and review it and share it with others who may benefit. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is to share topics at the intersection of work and life with the world. So I hope everybody stays well, take care and keep in touch. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded. Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.